0: Luke 4, verses 16 through 30. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind,
1: As we think we are. What if we're not as free as we think we are? Jesus in this passage is making an assessment about us and the human condition. And he's speaking about liberty. He's speaking about freedom. He's speaking about setting people free. So, we walk through this passage, we're going to see a couple of things. We're going to see that Jesus is appointing uh, or, or announcing, rather, that He is bringing something. And this thing that He's bringing is a new era. And this era is going to come through a certain someone. It's going to be marked by a certain something, and it's for certain types Of people. So, this era, we're gonna see who it comes through, what it's marked by, and who it's for. If you look through the text, Jesus is coming, he's coming to his hometown. This is the part on the tour, right, where you gotta book a couple of nights right? The artist is coming back to their hometown. They've sold out everything. They're coming back home. So they're not just going to do one night. They're going to do two nights because everybody wants to be there. He's just been doing ministry in Capernaum. The region is buzzing. There's never been a teacher like him before who has preached with such power. There's never been someone who has performed uh, miracles like him and has delivered people with so much authority. And now Jesus Christ is coming back home. He's coming back home to his hometown. And he goes home and he does his favorite thing that he loves to do. He goes to the synagogue to worship God his Father. So he pulls up at the synagogue and the leaders welcome him. They welcome him and they have him as their guest uh, preacher, their guest teacher. And so what do they do? They hand him the scroll. Jesus stands up for the reading, which they would do out of respect for the word of God. Verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolls the scroll. We don't know if, uh, it doesn't seem like they're assigning him this text. It looks like he's choosing this. And he goes to Isaiah chapter 61. And I bet as soon as he gets the scroll, everyone's wondering, what is he going to read? where is he going to turn to? Is he going to turn to Isaiah 1 and give us a message of rebuke? What is he going to turn to? And he turns to Isaiah 61, and he's reading from a portion of Isaiah that is all about this this figure, the servant of the Lord, this this figure prophesied about who would bring uh, wholeness to a broken world, who would bring salvation to a world that is far from God, and who would bring God's people back to God. So he reads this verses in 18 and 19, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he sits down, which is customary stand for the reading of God's Word at this time out of respect, sit down when the person is going to teach because there's a difference between God's pure Word and the words of a teacher. So he sits, and everybody's ready and waiting to see, well, what's the teaching that's going to come out of Jesus' mouth based on the Scripture that he just read? the end of verse 20, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, 21. And here's his sermon. Maybe he says more, but it looks like he keeps it short and sweet. Verse 21, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus says, my life is the fulfillment of this passage in living color." I am the embodiment of this passage in flesh. The era of the Lord's favor comes through me, starting today. Verses 18 and 19, if you're wondering about who Jesus is, what is he about, or you just need to be refreshed about who your Savior is, verses 18 and 19 declare the very purpose of Jesus' arrival the very purpose of what he is coming to do in human history, the very essence of his mission. Now we know this, when someone important shows up somewhere, we know that they're not just showing up there just to do something because they have a lot of free time. When someone important shows up to something, you know that there's a purpose, you know that there's a cause, you know that there's a mission, you know that there's a reason. And Jesus leaves the glories of heaven to come to the slums of earth with a mission. And we also know that if somebody has a mission of any sort, it requires resources. Some of you have undertaken missions this weekend. Maybe your mission was to get groceries, right? And to fulfill the mission of getting groceries, what do you need? You need a way to get there and you need a legal way of obtaining those groceries, right? Unless your mission is to be arrested, then you don't need to do anything legal. If you're going for a mission of, of doing the to-do list, you need the resources, the time to get it done. If your mission is your education, you need the resources of money for tuition and, a, and some book smarts to get the job done. But, and the bigger the mission is, the greater the resources that are necessary. And Jesus is coming and saying, I'm bringing the era of the Lord's favor saying there's going to be no other time in history like this, and I'm bringing it. It comes through me alone. He's got a cosmic mission. So what resources does he have for such a great task? How can he pull this off? Well, it's found in what he's quoting from. Isaiah 61, what he begins with in verse 18 is this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I've been, he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. This is what Jesus is saying. I've been divinely appointed for this cosmic mission, I've been divinely selected for this cosmic task. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. What this means is that God has filled me with his spirit, I am filled with with the divine for this task and for this mission. We see this throughout Luke. Luke, when he introduces Jesus, beginning his work in Luke chapter 4, Luke describes Jesus as being full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, walking in the power of the Spirit. All that to show us that Jesus is divinely appointed to bring the era of the Lord's favor to a broken world in humanity, that he is going to unleash and usher in this brand new era and age. Now, when a brand new era or age or a new kind of section in history is turned, we always wonder, what is it going to be like? If you get a new boss that's coming in and taking over your your place of work, and they come in and maybe the first meeting, she says, hey, this is going to be a new day in our company. This is going to be a new era in our company. You're going to be wondering, well, is is that for better or for worse? Like, What kind of person are you that you're going to be bringing in this new era? We get new elected officials and we wonder, what is this new era going to be like and look like? What's going to happen here? And Jesus is saying, I'm bringing in the new era and it's an era of the Lord's favor. And it's marked by something. We see this in the text. What does he say? I'm going to proclaim good news to the poor. What is he going to proclaim to the captives? I'm going to proclaim blank to the captives. What does he say? Liberty. Liberty Liberty to the captives. How many times do we see this idea of liberty in this passage? Proclaim liberty to the captives, set at liberty those who are oppressed. The era of the Lord's favor is marked by freedom. That is the seal, the emblem, the symbol that represents this new era of redemptive history. And this era of the Lord's favor is a new period in the history of God's work in the world, a new period that's marked by freedom. Jesus says, I've divinely sent by God the Father to bring freedom to captives, freedom to the oppressed, good news to the poor, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if someone comes up to you and says, yo, I'm going to set you free, that is presupposing something about you. God sending Jesus to liberate us presupposes something about us, something that we don't like to admit even though our experience tells the truth about it. Freedom as a need presupposes captivity as a reality. Now, this is, the turn, uh, this is the, the, the turn in the text, turn in the sermon, turn in, in this passage that, that determines whether this is going to be good news for you or just an exercise in intellectual work that's interesting, is whether you agree with Jesus' assessment about you, me, and humanity. Because Jesus' assessment is this, you and I need to be set free, which presupposes this, that you and I are in some sort of captivity or bondage. So the question for us is, do you know your need to be free? Do you long to be free? Now we know that the world needs freedom I think we would agree with this. We know that the world needs freedom from all sorts of stuff. We know the world needs freedom from violence, from tribalism, from racism, from sexism, from all sorts of isms. We know the world needs to be set free, right? In the 10 days since our presidential election, do you know how many hate crimes we've seen in our country? Over 900. We know that the world needs to be set free from these things. We know we live in a tense cultural moment now where the veil has been pulled back on our classism, our racism, and the divides in our country that we kind of forgot about. And we know we need to be freed from the tribalism that stops us from moving forward. We know that. Everybody in this room would agree with that, that we need freedom from those things. World history has taught us That despite our improvements in technology, in science, in medicine, we are still captive towards hating each other, killing each other, violence, oppression, and war. That for all the progress humanity has made, as we've marched from the first century to the 21st, things have just become bloodier. These are just facts for us. So we know that we need to be free, that all the the promised liberating things Like, more education will liberate us from these things. Uh, the, The liberal political agenda will liberate us from these things. The conservative political agenda will liberate us from these things. More literacy will liberate us from these things. Better civil rights will liberate us from these things. All of those things have helped in different ways, shapes, or forms. We can't knock that. But they have not got to the root of our captivity towards violence, hate, and the various isms that we perpetuate towards one another. They haven't. So we know that the world needs freedom from these things, but what about when we move from looking at the big picture of the world to the reflection in the mirror? We know that we can look at the world and see all the warts in the world and want liberation, but what happens when we see the warts of our character? What happens when we see the the warts in our motives, the warts in our actions? What happens when we start to see all the attitudes, actions, and things in us that are anti-God and pro-self, the things that the Bible describes as sin, elevating ourselves over God, over loving our neighbors, and pushing all of those things back to the side with ourselves as the deified ruler calling all the shots in our lives? Jesus, the saving liberator, assesses the situation, and he says, you and I, were captives. We're captives. Now, this is kind of him, because the first thing you have to do to set someone free is to help them understand that they need to be freed. Think about this. I don't know if you guys have seen the, this meme um, on the internet, or if you guys even know what a meme is, um, but there's one where it's a dog in a house that's on fire, and he's drinking coffee. And he's just drinking the coffee, and it says, everything's fine. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a funny meme because if you think about it, um, it's this idea that, well, you can be in a situation, and in order to get out of that situation, you need some sort of awareness that this situation is not good. And Jesus is giving us an, an, a wake-up call. He's giving us a good spiritual soul physician diagnosis to let us know We're captive. We're not as free as we think we are. There are attitudes, there are patterns in our life, there are sin tendencies in us that are actually holding us captive from experiencing all the liberating life and fullness of life and grace in Jesus that we could have. We're captive. Some of the things that we're captive to, some of us are captive to shame and guilt the banner flying over your life and the banner flying over the way that you think of yourself is shame, is guilt. That will eat you alive. This is you if all you can run through your head is your failures. If the highlight reel of your life, you think back, my life, and you play the tape in your head, and it's full of mistakes, it's full of failures, it's full of the things that your parents said to you or didn't say to you, it's full of your sin, it's full of all those things, you are captive to shame and to guilt. And don't let the externals fool you. Some of the most moral people, some of the friends that you have that is a person I wish I could be like they're captive to shame and guilt. And the way that they try to bleach the shame and guilt out of their souls is by being the best, most conscious, most kind, most caring people on the outside, because on the inside, they're being torn apart over the guilt and shame in their lives. Some of us are captive to shame and to guilt. And it's not enough to just forgive ourselves. We need someone from the outside to come in and liberate us. Some of us are captive to, culturally, we're captive, right? And we may not talk about it in these ways, but we're captive to the fear of death. One of the reasons Jesus comes, according to Hebrews chapter 2, is that the, he says this, that the, uh, to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver all who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery let the authors of Scripture talking about this, this concept of death that none of us can escape from. There's a way in which it enslaves us. It fills us with fear. That's why there's, when I turned 30 a couple weeks ago, I was like, you're getting old, you're getting old. I'm, like, I'm not getting old. I mean, I guess I'm getting old. Every day we're getting older. But it's this idea of like, wow, you're 30 now. You're going to die soon. <laughs> Let's just write the eulogy now. Get the will done, right? It's this idea of like we're coming toward, the, we, we have a, 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 a terminating date where we're finished and the knowledge of that holds us in captivity and fear. But Jesus says, I've come to destroy death. Death is actually a parasite on God's creation brought in by sin. It's not meant to be there. So Jesus is going to give death the death blow and hold a funeral for death and usher us in to eternal life by faith in His name and His grace. But culturally, we're so afraid of death that we'll talk about anything in our culture except the fact that we're all going to die right? You look at the magazine stands uh, when you go to get your groceries, there is no shame about what they're talking about. I got to pluck my kids' eyes out from looking at the covers or from reading anything, good thing they can't read yet. There's no shame in what we'll talk about. But you know what we don't talk about? You know what's not on the cover of any of those magazines? You're going to (laughs) die. We don't talk about that because we know that's the one thing that we, we can't really cosmic surgery our way out of that. And so we're captive even to the fear of death, but Jesus wants to liberate us. We're captive also to sin's power, broken living, broken attitudes, desires that we know are not leading us into the fullness of life, that we know are contrary to God, but somehow, way, we cannot shake them. No matter how hard we try, we're captive to sin's power. This is what Jesus assesses in, in the, the Gospel of John chapter 8. We can't fully get rid of some of our broken tendencies no matter how hard we try. No matter how hard we try. And we know this, we're reminded of this every January in a comical way when, when some of us take up New Year's resolutions, right? If you can't go to the gym 12 days straight, how do you think you're going to rid yourself of selfishness, right? Like, let's just use the greater, the, the greater than to lesser than logic. I, I can't even get myself to the gym, right? If, if someone gave me money, you could go to the gym four times in the next month, I'll, I'll maybe get two, right? So how am I in and of myself? Going to rid myself of the anger, the bitterness, or the selfishness or the pride that, that camps out in my heart? How's that going to happen? I'm not even disciplined enough to do something like go to the gym. How could I do a greater task of surgery and improvement on my own soul and character? I need help. I need a liberator to come and release me from the shackles that make me unable to change myself in those ways. And if you'll be honest, it's the same for you. We know this by any time we try to improve our way out. And Jesus is saying our central need is not an improvement project, but a liberator coming for us. So the question for us is, are we longing for Jesus, the liberator? The liberty of Jesus What he's saying, what he's preaching here before this this audience in the synagogue, this will only mean something to them, this will only mean something to us, if we felt our shackles. The message of liberation only means something to you if you felt the weight of your shackles. But for all those who see their captivity, who see their need, the good news is this, that we are in the era of good news. That Jesus is proclaiming, I am here, ushering in a new age in which you get to be set free through me. That through faith in my name, you're freed from guilt and shame. Through faith in my name, you're freed from death having the last word on you. Through faith in my name, you're free from the bondage of sin and from the penalty of sin. And now you're put forward with a new nature and a new heart, spiritually alive, to walk with God now and forever. Now, one thing that's really interesting about this, and every time somebody preaches, one of the tasks that they have to do that's interesting is they have to look at the text that that they're going through, and they got to figure out, man, there's so much here. What am I supposed to say? What is the meaning of this passage? What does God want me to say to these people in a reasonable amount of time? Because if I tried to explain everything about this passage to you, we'd be here for four hours. Jesus is going through the same thing when he preaches Isaiah 61, and he leaves off a verse. He leaves off a verse. So you look at 18 and 19. The last thing that he says is, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you know what verse he leaves off from the original, from Isaiah? And to bring the vengeance of the Lord. Jesus leaves that one off. Not because Jesus is afraid of saying hard things. You just read a few pages of the gospel, you'll realize that he says a lot of hard things and that if Jesus never offends you, you're not really reading Jesus correctly. But he leaves off the verse bringing the the Lord's vengeance because what he's saying is, I'm not doing that right now. Right now, I'm bringing the age of freedom through my grace. I'm bringing the era of the Lord's favor. There will come a time when I bring justice and retribution, but that time is not now. Now I am bringing the grace of God to the world that is broken and busted. That's what he's doing now. Jesus' arrival is the sign to us that God has not forgotten the world, but has instead shown light into the darkness. There's an era of salvation that's that's being freed from something, that's being rescued from something. That's what Jesus is bringing now. The era of the Lord's favor is marked by Jesus bringing freedom. Now, when Jesus' hearers in the synagogue hear him read this, especially when they hear that last line, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, you, the, what rings in their ears is something that they've heard and they've longed for and that they've known. It's similar to if, if you, you went to a, like a poetry reading or somebody reading a short story, and they started like this. Um, I don't even know how this goes. Um, they start like this. Far away, or how it go? Star Wars. In a galaxy far, far away, long ago. Right? You hear someone start a story like that, immediately you're like, Star Wars, man. Like what? What are you doing? Right? They immediately get the reference. They immediately get the callback. As soon as Jesus reads from Isaiah 61 and says, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, his audience in the synagogue, they all sit up because they understand the callback. They understand the reference. They understand what that passage is quoting from and what Jesus is now saying about himself and what it's quoting from is from Leviticus 25:10 that says this: proclaim liberty throughout all the land to its inhabitants. And what Leviticus is speaking about is what's called the year of jubilee. That every 50 years, freedom was to be proclaimed throughout the whole nation of Israel. The year of jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, full freedom and full redemption for anybody who was in any sort of bondage. That all slaves in Israel, slaves indentured servants were free to go that there were slaves, not not in the chattel slavery way that we think of, but there were people who put themselves under slavery because they needed a way to make money. They were to be treated respectfully so that they could get out of debt. When the year of Jubilee rolled around, all of them, they went free. Their debts wiped off, cleared, free, In the year of Jubilee, they even gave the land, they even gave the earth a rest. They said, hey, we're not going to farm the earth. Let's let the earth rest for for a year. Let's live off the reserves that we have. They, They gave the earth freedom and rest. All land that was owned by people, which was the way that you lived back in those days, all land that was owned by people, it returned back to its original owner to make sure that no citizen who was poor because they sold land long ago would be poor again. So everything reverted back. It was this freedom to those who were in economic debt, who were in physical um, servitude to someone else, to even the land. Everybody was set free. It was a year of jubilee. Now imagine this. If we declare a year of jubilee for student loans, what type of reaction do you think we're going to see across our country? I mean, it's going to be, it would be nuts. There would, there would be parades, there would be parades, right? So the year of jubilee is something like that, but greater. And Jesus is saying, I am bringing the year of jubilee not for your physical needs only, although he is going to do that, but I am bringing it for those needs within you that you cannot even free yourself from. This is the era of the Lord's favor. So what is that thing that is ensnaring you? What is that thing that you long to be freed from? And if you've already tasted Jesus' freedom, his freedom from death, his freedom from guilt, his freedom from sin's captivity, if you've already tasted those those things through faith in his name, ask yourself this, do you have jubilee joy in your life? Because when the year jubilee hits in Israel, let me tell you, people are going to go wild. Is your life marked by jubilee joy because you know that Jesus has set you free? Jesus isn't just bringing jubilee for one year, but he's bringing it as a new era. When he says year of the Lord's favor, it means era. When he says today, he means era. Era. Right, It's from then until he returns to bring justice and judgment. He's saying in between these two times, which is why God doesn't just renew the world now is he's continuing to dispense grace to the world, to bring more people into his kingdom, to set more people free from the penalty of sin, from guilt, from shame, and to bring them into relationship with him. Jesus says this era right now is the era of the Lord's favor. Not just a year, but a whole era. Now, if he's bringing the era of the Lord's favor, why does he almost get killed in this passage? That's the other question, right? What happens after he gives a sermon? He gives a sermon, and then what do we see? Verse 22, the people marveled and glorified his teaching, right? They loved it. They dug the sermon. They give it five stars on Yelp. They love it. So, you're the Lord's favor, freedom, fantastic. Spiritual freedom, political freedom from our oppressors. Okay, cool. But then Jesus keeps talking. It's almost as if Jesus knows he hasn't offended anybody yet. So he has to keep going. It's almost like, wait, you guys like this too much. That means you don't understand. Let me keep talking. And he's, he basically says, says this in, 20, in 23. He, he, he speaks to them. He says, You're going to tell me, physician, heal yourself, which basically he says that they are going to say, Prove it. Basically, show us. You've been healing people in Capernaum. You've been doing all sorts of stuff. Why don't you show us that you're giving sight to the blind, both spiritually and physically? Heal somebody. We've heard that you've been doing this. Let's prove it. Let's see it. But Jesus makes it plain that when the good news comes, when the the year of the Lord's favor is proclaimed, it's going to go to outsiders, not insiders. And that's why people get angry. Look at what he does. He gives two examples from the Bible that all his hearers would know to illustrate who the year of the Lord's favor really, in a first sense, goes to. He gives the illustration of Elijah, a prophet of God who went to a woman of Sidon, not the people of Israel, in verse 26. Jesus is saying, God sent this prophet, not to you guys, but to outsiders, people you think were outsiders, foreigners, another class, a a, a woman even. That would have been absurd at that point in time. 27, he says, Elisha, a key prophet, he heals Naaman, the Syrian, rather than coming to Israel. Jesus is again saying, look, the good news often goes to people that you're not going to expect. And when the crowd hears these things, their blood boils because Jesus is making this point, the good news of salvation, the freedom that Jesus brings, it goes first, not to the arrogant, but to the lowly. Not first to the insiders who look great on the outside, but to the outsiders because they know that they need some sort of help. And so when the crowd hears these things, their blood boils and they're going to try to throw him off the cliff. This is basically a first century, this is the closest thing you want to understand what's happening here. This is, this is a first century attempt to lynch someone. That's what they're trying to do to help you understand what's going on here. There will be rules and accommodations for for stoning somebody, and there would be a way to do that. But you have to go to a court to do those things. You have to have witnesses. You have to have all that sorts of stuff. What they're trying to do is mob violence. This is the crowd wanting to lynch Jesus. This would basically be like if somebody came in here and said something, and we all got angry and said, ah, and we just grabbed them, and we're going to try to take them out and murder them and execute them to send a message. So what happens that these people can go from in verse 22 a mood of marveling to verse 28 a mood of murder? It's because Jesus uh, Jesus struck a nerve. It's not that they're angry about the proclamation of freedom; they're angry about who the freedom is going to come to. They want to kill him because the year of the Lord's favor is proclaimed not just to a group but to the whole globe. So you see, there is a ethnocentrism here. There is a racism here. It says salvation is for us, not for the foreigners. But that's not how God operates. He operates with the globe in mind. Now, here's how this good news might anger you or comfort you. Jesus is saying, my mission is to preach the gospel to the poor. He says it right there. Now, we look at Luke's gospel. That means two things. That means the poor in spirit, which we see in Matthew. But it also means those who are poor, poor so poor they can't afford the extra O and the R, so they're just Po. both of those people. That's who he's going to. So what this means is if you are a spiritually middle-class or spiritually elite person, you will never taste the goodness of Jesus until you humble yourself. It will never come near you. But this means if you are a spiritually poor person who says, God, I really have nothing to offer you, I really can do nothing in and of myself. I really have no discipline to do any spiritual thing, to do really any good. And the good that I usually do, I only do it because I want people to not think I'm so horrible as I really am on the inside. God, I don't really bring a lot to the table. That's how you know the good news is gonna be knocking on your door and it's coming towards you because you are humble and broken and willing and ready to receive. But if you're a spiritually elite or middle-class person, the good news is gonna fly over your head. You can be a person who says, I love Jesus. But when we sing about Jesus' grace, when you think about what he did on the cross, when you think about the gospel, when you think about how he set you free from sin and guilt and shame and, and condemnation, those things don't mean anything to you. It's because you've worked your way up from being spiritually poor to being spiritually middle class. So now those things don't really hold the weight that they used to hold because your view of self is inflated. You've climbed a ladder. You've made it. You've moved from the spiritually poor slums to the spiritually middle class suburbs. And so grace doesn't come near you much anymore. And when it does, it doesn't mean anything. So when Jesus preaches and we follow his ministry, he goes to the literal poor to the spiritual poor the spiritually elite, this morally elite, the self-professed, self-made person, there's no good news for you until you recognize that you're captive, until you realize you need the liberator, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. See, spiritually elite person, this is what they do when they encounter Jesus. They like some of his teachings, but when they hear these teachings, like, like the ones where he says in John 6:44, and where he says all over the place, says things like, no one can come to God except through me. When a spiritually elite or spiritually middle-class person hears those things, they say, how dare you, Jesus? How dare you say something like that? What about this? What about that? What about that? But do you know what a spiritually poor person says when they hear that? A spiritually poor person says, are you kidding me? I, there's a way for me to come to God? I can come. I'm invited. There's an RSVP that's been sent to me. Jesus will have me. There's a way for me to get to God? That's incredible. That's incredible. See, a spiritually poor person has no time to say, well, that's this, that's this. They just say, I need help. There's grace for me. I'm going to think about those questions. I don't understand them. Yes, but there's grace for me. Let me run to where this grace is being given. Because they understand that they're in bondage the facade of being a self-made person is out the window, despite that they have degrees on the wall, despite that they may have education, despite they may make six figures, they understand deep down that they need a liberator from outside of themselves. To the spiritually poor person, Jesus Christ is jubilee personified. So you're a jubilee in a person, right there ready for us, waiting with open arms. Now, how is it that Jesus can liberate? How can he do this? How is it that liberation comes through proclaiming? If liberation is going to come through proclaiming, that word that's proclaimed has got to be powerful enough to break chains. And the word that Jesus proclaims is going to be the action that Jesus lives. Let me say that again. The word that Jesus proclaims is the action that Jesus lives. That's how it can set us free. Because it's not just a word, it's word about a news, it's word about something that was done for us. So Jesus continues his ministry and his journey through the gospel of Luke, he goes to a cross where he bears the penalty of the sin for all who would trust in him, and that is the power of liberation to us, and we receive it by faith. The moment you trust in Jesus as your liberator, you are freed from the penalty of sin, you are freed from the guilt that hangs over your head, you're freed from the shame that keeps you up at night, you are set free once and for all, declared by God. And then the call on your life is to just walk more and more in that freedom, to live out the reality of who you truly are in God's sight, because Jesus Christ, the liberator, went under the captivity of death for you. He went under the captivity of his sin for you. He endured the captivity of guilt for you. That's all what he's bearing when he's hanging upon the Roman cross. He goes under the weight and bondage of those things so that we would be set free. And what happens when you get this news, two things, you receive it by faith, not through works, and then the next thing, you just rejoice. Think about the year of the jubilee. When that's declared, what person working in the field is going to hear that call,
0: year of jubilee,
1: they hear that call and say, I'm all right, I'm good doing these things. Keep shucking this corn, keep pulling these carrots or whatever you would do. What person is going to say, I'm good, that's fine. You guys go, go ahead, I'll be here. Person could do that. You receive the news, you receive it. And after you receive it, what do you do? Yeah, the natural thing, you just rejoice. The year of the Lord's favor is here. You just rejoice, you celebrate, you laugh, you have a drink, you clap, you dance, because God wants to set us free. And that means the era of history that we're in, despite how broken it looks, this is still the era of the Lord's favor. Freedom in Jesus' name is going out all over the world. Light has shone into the darkness because this is the year of the Lord's favor. How will we respond? How will we rejoice? How will we walk in the freedom that Jesus alone offers through His grace? Let's take a moment to pray silently and respond. Encourage you in this moment to think about whether you are experiencing the freedom of Jesus that comes through his name by faith. Think about whether your life, if you trust Jesus, is marked by Jubilee joy. Take a moment to pray silently. God, we thank you that you love this broken world and broken humanity so much that you have sent your son to be our liberator to be the one who endures our shame our penalty our guilt upon the cross so that we could be set free god what does that say about about your love for us that you would see us captive by our own doing and you would you would step into the mess i would praise your name we pray that you would help us to see christ to understand the scope of his work to know that we stand in the year of the Lord's favor, to know that there is good news for us in his name. Help us to grab hold of it. Help us to live in light of it. Help us to take that good news to others. And now would you lead us in response to that good news through, through song. And I pray that as we sing, God, that you would allow these truths to sink more deeply into our minds and our hearts. Pray it in Christ's name. Amen.